So I'd like to read you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 5. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think sometimes it's easy to miss the point. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson were said to be camping one day, and uh, they were in this tent under the stars. They went to sleep, and then they woke up, or, or Sherlock Holmes woke up. He said, Watson, look at the stars. What do you deduce? Watson said, well, I, I see hundreds of millions of galaxies. And through those hundreds of millions of galaxies, there must be some, un, uh, some other inhabitable lands. There must be alien life on those lands. To which Holmes responded, no, you idiot. Someone stole our tent. We can see the stars. Sometimes we miss the point. There was a customs officer uh, one time, and he you know, manned the border, and this truck kept coming through. And he had this feeling about this person and thought that he was smuggling something. So the first time he comes through, they went and they just basically tore the truck apart. They took all the panels off. They have flashlights. They're going through the whole truck. They don't find anything. So he knows something is going on, but he can't find anything, so he's waves them through. The next week, the same guy comes through. Same thing happens again. And so they, they bring out the x-rays, the sonars, everything to try to find what this guy is smuggling. But each week, they don't find anything. This happens for years, and it just drives this customs officer crazy. Finally, it comes time for him to retire. And as he's retiring, he wants to figure out this mystery. So this guy comes through. He says, I know you're smuggling something. Don't try to deny it. I've seen you these many years trying to smuggle something, but I can't for the life of me figure out what it is. Now, I'm retiring. I don't have any authority to do, something, do anything to you. I assure you, could you just tell me what it is? And he said, I've been smuggling trucks. Sometimes we miss the point. Sometimes what's right in front of us, what's obvious, we miss. When I was in seminary, I took this uh, Old Testament class. And I started off with high hopes for this class, but it got really boring really quickly. You ever had a class like that? And so it got to a point where I just kind of came in with my friend, and we sat at the back of the room and played on our computers the whole time. And so this was a really straightforward class. It wasn't anything that was just, you know, very complex. So I thought, I just remember the things I need to remember. Remember the facts. I can read the book, study, do well on the test, and everything will be great. So it's final exam week, and I'm, you know, going through the progression. I have, you know, different tests, different days, and so I'm studying for different tests. And so I'm starting to study for this Old Testament class, and I'm walking through the halls of the academic center going somewhere, and my friend who was also in that class comes up to me and says, I didn't see you today. Where, where were you? I said, what do you, what do you mean? It's like, you weren't in the final exam today. It's like, oh, boy, I thought it was tomorrow. See, I thought I knew the information that I needed to know, but I missed the most important, the most obvious thing to do well in the class, the final exam. 
In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's describing the way in which he presented the gospel to them. And he states that he doesn't want to put any distractions in their way. In other words, he doesn't want them to miss the point. And it comes down to even the way that he's going to communicate the gospel to them. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we talked about how in the ancient world, and specifically in Corinth, people loved the rhetorical artistry. They loved to hear different speakers. And you'd have these speakers that were persuasive, and they would just dazzle their audience with their wisdom and their knowledge. And so people loved to just listen to these different speakers. And Paul says, I'm not going to use their abilities. I'm not going to use their skills. I'm not going to try to be like them because I don't want you to be attracted to me and my message. I want you to see Jesus and the cross. And so he says, I'm not going to become an orator. I'm not going to uh, talk in lofty speech. As he says, I'm not trying to persuade and dazzle you with human wisdom. I'm not trying to perform in front of you. He says, I want you to know Christ and him crucified. And the reason he says that is because it's easy to miss the point. There was a study that was done about 20 years ago. And in the study, volunteers were asked to watch this 30-second video. And they were told to, it was a basket, two basketball teams that were just passing the ball. And there were several balls, and they are just passing to one another. And there was a black, people with black shirts and white shirts. And so they said, okay, watch it, the, t- the team that has white shirts and see how many times they pass. And so people will start watching it, and in the middle of the video, there's this man in a gorilla costume that comes out and just kind of walks around and, and dances. And then after, they ask people, did you see anything unusual? Many people said, no. And then they keep asking other questions, and finally the last question is, did you see a gorilla? And remarkably, 58% of the people, over half of the people, didn't see that gorilla that was right in the middle of the video dancing around because they were focused on something else. They were fo- so focused on counting the passes that they didn't see what was right, right in front of them. And I think that we can do the same thing. I think we can be focused on the things of life and we can miss what's important. We can miss the obvious of relationship with Christ. It's easy on a day like today when so much is going on. You know, maybe we're starting to think about lunch, starting to think about going to the fair later. There's so many things happening in our busy lives. But I think it would be a shame if we missed what God has to say to us. So my goal today is not that we would learn something new even, that, but my goal is that we wouldn't miss the point, that we would know Christ, the power of his resurrection. And specifically, there's three things that I, with the Apostle Paul, hope that we don't miss today in relationship to the gospel. The first is I, I don't think we, I hope we can't miss sin. We can't miss sin. See, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Most people don't have a problem with believing that. Most people don't have a problem believing that there's evil out there. From a corrupt politician to an abusive spouse, we don't have trouble believing that there's evil out there. But I think what we have trouble believing is that there's evil inside of us. We tend to think that evil is out there. And we tend to group people either into really good people or really bad people. And oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes, but I'm not like that bad person that I know. I don't do anything like that. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn, famous Russian writer, once said this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. So we group people either good or bad and oftentimes those who are in our own group we consider good and those outside our group we consider bad. And I think part of the problem is we view sin as deeds rather than as a disease. We view sin as just kind of actions rather than as as a disease. Now think about two scenarios. First scenario, uh, a person is experiencing severe physical difficulties. They've been throwing up. They've been having severe headaches. They have trouble sleeping. They've had fainting spells. And they go to the doctor, and the doctor runs some tests, and it's determined that they have cancer. And it's progressed to such a point that it's spread throughout the, the body Uh, It's stage four, and the doctor says, unfortunately, I I don't think you have more than a few weeks left to live. Within a few days, that person is in the hospital, on a ventilator, not doing well at all, just having a terrible time. Then imagine the second person, who's a friend of that first person. The second person is a health nut. They run two miles each day. They eat healthy. They don't do anything that would harm their health. They take care of themselves. They go to the doctor for regular checkups. And in the course of going to the doctor for a regular checkup, it's determined that they have cancer. But it's stage one cancer. It can be treated. It's not the end of the world. They can, they've caught it early, and there's a good prognosis for treatment. Now, that person could think to themselves, well, I know what cancer looks like. My friend has cancer, and he's in the hospital, and he's on a ventilator. He's not doing well at all. I run each day. I feel fine. I don't really believe that I have cancer, or I don't need to do anything to fix this cancer. And if that's the case, that cancer is going to overtake him as well. I think the same thing is true in regard to how we view sin. Sometimes we look at someone who's kind of stage four. It's kind of progressed. It's really, really bad. And we're like, I'm not like that person. I don't do things like that person. I'm not terrible like that person is. Maybe we're not because we're stage one. But we still got that tendency in our heart. And if it's unchecked, maybe it could even lead to that. The thing is, if we don't recognize our sin, we can't be cured from it. St. Augustine, speaking of his life before he became a Christian, wrote this in his Confessions that his sin was the more incurable, whereby I did not judge myself a sinner. We won't recognize the cure if we don't recognize the disease. The idea of original sin, that we're all broken and we're all sinners before God, it's obvious, but it's also something that's easily forgotten or rejected. Even people who are atheists acknowledge the truth of original sin. Philosopher Michael Ruse has written, with respect to my main claims of Christianity, I'm pretty atheistic. I prefer the term skeptic to describe my position. I'm an ardent evolutionist. I think that science is the highest form of knowledge. I'm a philosophical naturalist. And yet he defends the argument of original sin. He argues, I think Christianity is spot on about original sin. How could one think otherwise when the world's most civilized and advanced people the people of Beethoven, Goth, Kant embraced this slimeball Hitler and participated in the Holocaust. He says, I think St. Paul and the great Christian philosophers had real insights into sin and freedom and responsibility. 
And I want to build on this rather than turn from it. So the first thing I think we need to be careful we don't miss is we don't miss the fact that we're all sinners before God. Second thing I think we need to be careful we don't miss is we don't miss God's power. Years ago, a few years ago, there was this great scientific discovery where researchers said they'd found evidence for the Big Bang. The evidence suggested that the, re- that the universe grew so quickly it left patterns of light visible to the very far reaches of the universe. The Washington Post described the discovery this way. In the beginning, the universe got very big very fast, transforming itself in a fraction of an instant from something almost infinitesimally, infinitesimally small to something imponderably vast, a cosmos so huge that no one will ever be able to see it all. This is the premise of an idea called cosmic inflation, a powerful twist on the Big Bang Theory, and it received a major boost from an experiment at the South Pole called BICEP2. A team of astronomers announced that it had detected ripples in the gravitational waves created in a violent inflationary event at the dawn of time. USA Today reported the universe underwent a fast and incomprehensibly massive growth spurt in its early infancy. Robert Dreher writes, there was nothing, and then in an instant there was something. It's almost like someone created the cosmos out of nothing. So we have the universe, we have the natural laws of the universe, and the same person or or different people can look at those same facts, and one person can say it's evidence for a big bang. Other people can say it's evidence for a divine creator. The Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the power of God. Paul writes this in Romans 1.20, For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens show us the power and the majesty of God. Scientists often talk about something called anthropic constants. And anthropic constants are these little small parameters that if they were turned one way or the other, uh, life would not be inhabitable on the earth. Some scientists have noted up to 100 of these anthropic constants. Just a few of them that I found uh, on the Internet. The oxygen level. Oxygen comprises 21% of the atmosphere. If the level moved to 25%, fires would erupt spontaneously. If it were 15%, humans would suffocate. The atmospheric transparency. If the atmosphere were less transparent, not enough for solar radiation to reach the Earth's surface, it would uh, plants would not be able to live. If it were more transparent, we would be bombarded with far too much solar radiation. The moon-Earth gravitational interaction. If the interaction was greater than it currently is, tidal effects on the ocean, atmosphere, and rotational period would be too severe. If it were less, orbital changes would cause climactic instabilities. In either event, life on Earth would be impossible. The carbon dioxide level. If the CO2 level were higher than it is now, a runaway greenhouse effect would develop and we'd all burn up. If the level were lower than it is now, plants would not be able to maintain efficient photosynthesis, and we'd all suffocate. Gravity. If the gravitational force were altered by 0.000000001, our sun would not exist, and therefore neither would we. In their book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Lelano uh, talk about this, these anthropic constants, and they state this. 
Our universe and its laws appear to have a design that is both tailor-made to support us, and if we're to exist, leaves little room for alteration. That is not easily explained and raises the natural question of why it is that way. So you have these constants that have to be just perfect for life to exist. The remarkable thing is, you look at those, that last quote that I read, those people are not believers. And they don't suggest that they are uh, created by God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And amazingly, as we look at the creation, it declares the power of God, and yet we can often pass by it. But even more importantly than the power of God we see in creation is the power of God we see demonstrated in the gospel. The power of God that is demonstrated in changed lives. And there are so many people throughout history who have been changed dramatically for Christ. Some of them are sitting to your left or right. Some of, them, uh, some of us have stories of how God transformed. I was just listening. Uh, a brother told me a story, you know, how God transformed him just before the service today. God changes lives. You think about the Apostle Paul who wrote a good percentage of the New Testament. He was murdering Christians before he became a believer. St. Augustine, who I quoted, he was a sexually immoral thief who delighted in sin. He said he stole not because he needed anything, because he delighted in stealing. And yet God changed him and made him a pillar of the early church. C.S. Lewis was a hardcore atheist. He was a hardcore atheist, and God transformed him, and he went on to write the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, one of the greatest Christian thought leaders of the 20th century. John Newton was a slave trader, transporting slaves from Africa for the slave trade, and he was transformed by Christ, tried to abolish the slave trade. Chuck Colson was nicknamed the White House Hatchet Man under Richard Nixon. He was notorious for his ruthless nature in getting things done. And it got, got a hold of his heart, and he went on to have an incredible prison ministry for decades. Jesus changes hearts, and the power of God is demonstrated and changed lives. Several years ago, a um, movie came out, Bruce Almighty. Some of you may have seen it. And in this movie, Bruce Almighty, Bruce is having this midlife crisis. He's a weatherman, I think, he, I think he is in the movie. And he's just, everything seems to be going wrong for him. And he makes this statement to his girlfriend, I think I could do a better job than God in running the universe. And so God allows him to do that for a short time. And he has all of these powers, and he's doing all these crazy things. But he's using it for kind of silly purposes. Like there's tomato soup, and he parts it to make it look like, uh, you know, parting the Red Sea. And, you know, he has alphabet soup, and he's, you know, putting the letters together, and he changes his car into a Ferrari. And, and his career is going great because he's doing all these magical kind of things. And so God confronts him, and uh, they're in this kind of warehouse, and they're kind of just mopping the floor, and God is talking to him. And uh, he says, you know, I'm not opposed to using sup my supernatural powers, but I often work subtly. And he goes on to explain that the things that he's looking for are not magic tricks, but miracles. He says this, parting your soup is not a miracle. Bruce, it's a magic trick. A single mom who's working two jobs and still finds the time to take her kid to soccer practice, that's a miracle. 
A teenager who says no to drugs and yes to an education, that's a miracle. You think about these things, and I don't know that they're, those things are miracle, but when God changes someone's heart, when, one, when a person is going one way and God gets a hold of their heart and completely transforms their lives, that's a miracle. And that demonstrates the power of God. We can't miss God's power. God's, presence, God's power is present all around us in the creation that he's made and the lives that he's changed in those around us. So we can't miss God's power. Final thing we can't miss is we can't miss Jesus. Amazingly, many people in our world, even in the church, have missed Christ. We have this idea, some people have this idea that Christianity is just about a moral improvement program or it's just about adopting a particular ideology. But it's so much more than that. I think sometimes we miss Jesus because Jesus is a little bit unassuming. There's a story that was written, or, or biography that was written by Ron Chernow about Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, Ulysses S. Grant's story is kind of interesting how he was just a store clerk and then he was kind of raised up become, to become the leading general for the Union armies. And uh, he just kind of rose to prominence really quickly. And in kind of the height of that fame, as he's raising to prominence, uh, people wanted to get to know him. Like, who is this general who is leading the, the armies and who uh, they'd put their hope in? And so Secretary of War Edward Stadden and Ohio Governor John Bro uh, decided they were going to go and meet Grant as Grant was heading to Louisville. And so Stadden, excited to see Grant, goes straight into uh, Grant's car, looks at the officers present, and then he shakes the hand of a bearded man with an army hat, whom he assumed was Grant. Was Grant. He says, how do you do, General Grant? I recognized you from the pictures. But he was embarrassed to learn that he was shaking the hands of Grant's medical director. Chernow explained, Stanton later admitted that in guessing which officer was Grant, he had eliminated the real Grant because he looked too much too, much too ordinary and wasn't the prepossessing figure he had imagined. He was expecting someone really strong, really mighty, and he wasn't expecting someone who looked like Grant. He was unassuming. And I think Jesus is a little bit like that. He's a God who was born in a feeding trough. He's a God who died on the cross, who went into heaven. And the way that he speaks is often not through rolls of thunder, but through a gentle whisper. And so it's easy to miss Jesus sometimes because he seems unassuming. Now one day we know that he's going to come back and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord, but now it's easy to miss him sometimes. That's the first reason, I think, is because he's unassuming. He's not going to uh, show himself in the way that we might expect him to. But I think the second reason that we miss him is because we're focused on substitutes. We're focused on chasing after substitutes rather than following after him. And we'd rather have the substitutes than Christ. Elvis Presley uh, used to hang out at this... uh, steakhouse called Little Thompson Steakhouse in Tennessee. And uh, he would go there before he became famous, and he knew the person who run the restaurant, and uh, he would get free food and stuff, and just a place he liked to hang out. Then after he becomes famous, and he's kind of at the height of his popularity, uh, they're having an impersonator contest at the steakhouse. And Elvis is like, 
I'm going to go there and I'm going to mess this, this up. Now, the manager of the restaurant, the owner of the restaurant, was a little bit concerned because if people found out that Elvis was in the house, they were going to go crazy and he's afraid that like there's going to be a mob scene or something crazy is going to happen. But Elvis couldn't be deterred. So he goes there to this impersonator contest and he, sa- he sings Love Me Tender and afterwards they get, he gets some polite applause and he won third place in the impersonator contest. I mean, it's crazy. Elvis was standing right in front of them, but they mistaked him for someone else. In the Bible, we see who Jesus is. In the Bible, we see that Jesus was a son of God who loved us enough to die on the cross for us, desires to have a relationship with him. And the Bible re- reveals that the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment can fo- be found in a relationship with him. But so often we miss him because we're focused on substitutes. There's a famous study that was done in the 19, started in the 1930s, 1940s. And in this study, a uh, Harvard researcher, psychiatrist named uh, George Valent decided he was going to kind of study uh, this group of uh, Harvard graduates and kind of look at the things in their life of what went wrong, what went right, and what were the factors that contributed to their well-being. And so he followed them for decades And he summarized his results in his book, Triumphs of Experience. His summary in its entirety is this. Happiness is love, full stop. The current director of the study, the psychiatrist Robert Weldinger, filled in the details. He said in a recent interview that the subjects who reported having the happiest lives were those with strong family ties, close friendships, and rich romantic lives. The subjects who were most depressed and lonely late in life, not to mention more likely to be suffering from dementia, alcoholism, or other health problems, were the ones who had neglected their close relationships. Happiness is love. That's true in terms of human relationships, but it's also true in our relationship with God. If we want a life of fulfillment, we want to have joy that's found in the love of Christ in a relationship with Him. When I was 10 or 11 years old, I went to a Christian conference, and something happened there that I'll never forget. At this conference, they had people, you know, gather up in circles and kind of pray for one another. I remember we gathered up in circles, and I saw this man. He was probably in his 70s or 80s. He seemed really old for me as a 10- or 11-year-old, and he's just weeping. Tears are just flowing down his face. Now, I was kind of concerned about this because I hadn't seen – uh, many men that age cry. And so I'm thinking, what's, what's happening? And I found out the reason he was crying was because he had wasted so many years of his life not following after Christ. He lamented the decades that he had spent, that he had missed what was important. And how sad that was. But thankfully he got it before it was too late. How sad would it be if we reached the end of our lives and realized that we've missed What's important that we've missed Jesus. So that's why I think it's important we don't miss these things. We don't miss sin. We don't miss the power of God. We don't miss Jesus. Don't leave this place not knowing Christ. Several years ago, um, about a year after I met my wife, or, or, you know, met Stephanie, um, I started thinking about proposing. And so I 
had this whole elaborate scene put together. For, of, course, of course, first I got a ring, and then I staked out a location, and then I enlisted my brother to help, and my brother went and uh, lit these candles in the shape of a heart and had this music playing, and so the plan was to, have, uh, to walk with my wife and then have the music playing, and then we went up to this location, and then I got down on one knee and asked her to marry me. Now imagine if I did all that. You know, and I'm committing my life to saying, will you marry me? Will you spend your life with me? Being that vulnerable, imagine if she pulled out her phone, looked at her phone, and just walked away. I mean, how sad would that be? How terrible would that be? But I think sometimes we do that with Christ. He's given everything for us. The cross is his proposal to us. The cross is him, him saying, here I am. My yes is on the table. I want to have a relationship with you. And so many just turn the other way, focused on other things, missing what's important. St. Theodore, an 8th century Byzantine monk, once said this about the cross of Christ. How splendid the cross of Christ. It brings life, not death, light, not darkness, paradise, not its loss. It is the wood on which the Lord, like a great warrior, was wounded in hands and feet and side, and healed thereby our wounds. A tree had destroyed us. A tree now brought us life. If you're here and you're not a believer today, don't leave this place without knowing Christ. The Bible says the way that we enter into a relationship with him, the way that we say yes to him, is through faith. Saying, I can't do this life on my own. I'm tired of living life by myself. I want to follow you. I want to do things your way. I want a relationship with you. And we can invite him into our life just by prayer. Say, God, I want that. And choosing each day to follow after him. If there's anyone here who hasn't entered into a relationship with Christ, I'd love to talk to you more about how to do that. If you're a believer, too, I think we all need to be careful that we don't miss these things. We don't miss the fact that we're sinners. Sometimes we can go so far in our Christian life and God has transformed us so much that we feel like we don't need him anymore. We feel like we have it all figured out. And yet we need to be reminded sometimes that we're all broken. We're all at the same place. We have no boasting before God. We're all sinners in need of grace. We also need to be sure that we don't miss his power. How often do we pray for things? And then God answers and it's like a coincidence. We think of it as a coincidence because we're not looking for his power. How often do we go outside and look up into the stars? And we just think about, you know, what we're doing the next day. We think about work rather than being focused on the glory of God. Be reminded of his power. We need to be careful and be sure that we don't miss Jesus. Each day that we have, each moment that we have is an opportunity to have a relationship with Christ. But how often do we miss those opportunities? How often are we focused on other things rather than on Christ? Let's not miss what's important. Let's not miss Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, while we had no hope, where we had no chance of earning your favor, you came down to the earth in the greatest love story ever told. You lived a perfect sinless life and you died the death of a criminal so that we might have life because you loved us so much. 
Lord, help us not to miss that. Lord, help us not to be distracted by all of the things that might be thrown at us. This world is a difficult, sometimes confusing place to live in, Lord, but we know that your promises are true. Lord, help us to remember your cross, to be gripped by your cross in it, for it to change our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.